Welcome to Dietitians Uncorked, a podcast hosted by Kat and Kelly, two registered dietitians who co-founded Nutriving, a virtual nutrition practice. We talk all things food, nutrition, life, and of course, wine. This is a judgment-free zone where all foods fit and all bodies are welcome. Thanks hey for friends, listening. welcome back to another episode of Dietitians Uncorked. This is Kat speaking and I am so excited for you to listen to this episode and for me to introduce our amazing guest. Before I do that, I want to do a little plug for our Nourish and Empowered group program, which will be coming up live very, very soon. So if you are interested, you can log on to our website, uh, newtriving.com and go to the group service tab um, and check it out. But we are bringing a hot topic today. Uh, we are talking all about intermittent fasting. And you might be thinking, this isn't their usual MO. We typically recommend our clients to move away from dieting and find what works best for them um, within the food freedom world. We've seen clients do really well with this. Um, But it is a hot topic and we understand that there is a lot of curiosity as to what intermittent fasting is about and whether that's something you would like to dive into or not. Um, It is important for us that if you are going to do a specific diet or, or, or um, maybe recommend it for a friend or a family that you get all the information that is important regarding this diet. So we decided to do this episode to bring the best source we could possibly find. Yes, not our usual perspective, I would say. So again, if you've been listening to us for a while, you know that often we're approaching things from more of a non-diet perspective because many of our clients are coming from the world of dieting where they have tried to follow a diet, you know, it's worked for a little bit and then it doesn't work. And so they're kind of going through this cycle, this yo-yo dieting, which is not serving them. So most of the time we are moving away from that. But at the same time, Kat and I understand that different things work for different people and people are searching for information about intermittent fasting, for example. And so we want to give you legit information, like actual research from the mouth of a researcher, someone who's dedicated um, a good chunk of her career, who's really in the thick of the research, because we understand there's a lot of information overload with this topic. You can Google it and find a million and one, you know, contrasting information, different opinions. And and we know not everyone has the time to sit down and really sift through that or, you know, read research papers. So we want to simplify it for you and, and give you a perspective of someone who's in the field and has been for a long time. Yes. So I let me introduce our guest. Dr. Krista Verdi is a professor of nutrition at the University of Illinois in Chicago. Her research focuses on the efficacy of intermittent fasting for weight loss, as well as cardiometabolic markers. She is also the author of The Every Other Day Diet, She has been researching intermittent fasting for over 15 years, and her research has been published in a wide variety of medical journals. 
Her Twitter and Instagram account um, is at Dr. Krista Verdi. So if you are curious to follow what she has to say about it, you can um, follow her Insta and her Twitter on our show notes as well. And uh, here is a conversation we had with Dr. Verdi. Enjoy. Okay. Welcome, Krista. We are so excited to have you on the podcast. Thank you for joining us. We have a lot to get through today, and we are very excited to hear what you have to say. So I'm just going to jump right into our questions here. Um, You often talk about intermittent fasting as an umbrella term. So we're wondering if you could explain a little bit, what do you mean by that? And just help our listeners understand your perspective. Oh, sure. Well, thanks so much for having me here today. Um, So yeah, intermittent fasting, there's like so many definitions and terms involved that I think people get really confused. So the first thing I like to clarify is that it's an umbrella term. So it's basically an umbrella term for three specific diets. One is alternate day fasting. That's when people have um, a feast day alternated every other day with a fast day. So on the feast day, people can you know truly do whatever they want. There's no limitations on like calories or carbs or anything like that. And then on the fast day, people typically eat about five to six hundred calories as a lunch or a dinner, and then or they could just do like a full day of just like water fasting if they prefer. That's called like zero cal- calorie alternate day fasting. And then the second type of intermittent fasting is the 5-2 diet. So that's when people just do like two fast days per week. It's kind of like a modified, slightly easier version of alternate day fasting. And then, yeah, so the two stands for two fast days per week. And then there's five feast days per week. And a lot of times I would suggest putting those fast days on like a weekday um, it's really hard to fast on the weekends, like when, um, you know, when you have like social stuff. So just as a little tip there. And then there's time-restricted eating, which is when that's the third type. And that's probably the most popular type in the U.S. right now. And that's when people eat within anywhere from like a four to 12-hour window daily. I'd say the most popular type of time-restricted eating is the eight-hour diet. So you might have heard of like the 16-8 diet, which is 16 hours of water fasting and then eight hours of um, uh, an an eight-hour eating window. Right. Thanks for that clarification. I think there is a lot of confusion because intermittent fasting does, you know, involve a lot of different approaches to it. You study, though, mainly alternative day fasting, right? Alternate day fasting? Um, I used to, but now I study oh, okay. more like time-restricted eating. So most of our most recent studies, like we're running three studies now in time-restricted eating, and we've published like two. But it's true, yeah, historically, because I've been studying intermittent fasting for 15 years. Um, yeah. Our lab probably ran some of like the first human trials in this area. So, oh, wow. But yeah, I kind of shifted over from alternate day fasting to um, time-restricted eating just because I knew that, you know, that's what people wanted to do. So, And that's sure, where the grant money sure. is too, so... Yeah, yeah, absolutely. So what kind of benefits have you seen, have you guys found in your research so far with this type of intermittent fasting? Um, So with time-restricted eating, well, with all of them, they all produce weight loss. Um, Mm -hmm. We published, a couple weeks ago, we published um, uh, a review article in Nature Reviews, just summarizing all the benefits and then also giving some advice like clinical applications Um, But yeah, they all produce weight loss. I'd say what we're noticing now is that the weight loss with time-restricted eating is actually a lot slower. 
So alternate day fasting, people lose like roughly, you know, like 10 to 20 pounds in three months. And then with time-restricted eating, it's more like 5 to 15 pounds roughly. Um, So I'd say the weight comes off like about half as fast with time-restricted eating. But the cool part about the like 16-8 diet and all those different um, time-limited eating ones is that you don't have to count calories. So you really like pick your eating window. A lot of people pick like six or eight hours. You just pick when you want to place the window. So a lot of people pick like 12 to 8. And you don't eat anything. You just, you know, consume water or calorie-free beverages up until 12. And then, yeah, from 12 to 8, you don't have to count calories at all. And people just love it. Like, it's it's amazing because, you know, people get really burnt out of, um, like, calorie restriction and, you know, even alternate day fasting because they have to carefully monitor um, calories all the time. And, you know, I know you're both dietitians and you help people probably with weight management a lot and tracking is like a major thing, but, and you know, people can do that well for like a month or two and then after a while they just stop wanting to do it. So, um, yeah, time restricted eating may be something that people can stick to long-term for weight management. We're actually, um, measuring that now we're running like the first 12 month trial of time restricted eating. So we'll see, yeah, we'll see if people can stick to it. And then our lab has also found that by just limiting the eating window to six to eight hours, people naturally cut out about three to 500 calories, which results yeah. in, you know, roughly like a pound of weight loss per week. I'm excited to see results of a 12 month study because that's definitely longer than the majority of the research that's mm-hmm, out there right out now. There. Mm-hmm. For sure. Yeah. The longest study I think right now is four months. So, cause I mm-hmm. think people also have to understand that, um, Time-restricted eating, like we we actually, our lab ran the first weight loss study and that was just five years ago. So there's like maybe yeah. 20 clinical trials out there right now. Um, I get all these like complicated questions about like meal timing and, you know, like, is it like, do postmenopausal react differently? And I'm just like, oh no, just hold up. There's only like 20 trials total. We have like yeah. no answers. Yeah, like we know it like helps people lose weight and lowers their blood pressure and cholesterol levels a bit. But like, other than that, you know, it's a very new area. I'm going to take us into our next question, which is kind of a, a two-part question. So first, who would you say that this diet is is perfect for? Who is the kind of ideal person to follow it? And the second part is who should not follow intermittent fasting? Um, I'd say, you know, it's like intermittent fasting can be used by, I'd say, like most people that want to lose weight. Um, I'd say people with type 2 diabetes definitely have to carefully work with their doctors to adjust meds and do some glucose monitoring so they don't get like bouts of hypoglycemia. Um, but in general, it's like a very accessible diet. Like it's great that you don't have to buy expensive products for this diet. Um, you don't have to like swap out all the foods in your pantry. Like really, if you have like, I always say if you have access to the time or if you own a clock or something, you can do these diets. So for the most part, I'd say most people can do them with the exception of um, we definitely don't recommend them for children under the age of 12. Um, right now, there's some studies being performed in adolescents, and um, time-restricted eating has helped um, adolescents with kind of more severe obesity lose weight. Um, we also don't recommend it for people that for women who are like pregnant or lactating, and then also kind of older people. So there's not a lot of safety data for people older than 70 years old. Um, you know, after 70, people start losing a lot of muscle. And when people are doing kind of like heavier calorie restriction or kind of any calorie restriction, that can exacerbate muscle mass um, loss. So 
I'd say probably not for people um, over 70 as well. Right. Um, fantastic. Well, you've already mentioned this. Um, the longest, uh, you have now a study coming up for 12 months, right? 12 yeah, months that's right. Study yeah. For fasting. Yeah. So we don't have a whole lot of data. We can't really connect it to lots of uh, long-term outcomes yet, like prevention of chronic disease or anything, but maybe in anecdotal data or overall, your overall perception, is your impression that people can maintain the weight loss even after, you know, a specific or a longer term of uh, following intermittent fasting? Um, yeah, so there's only about four studies right now looking at, and most of them are with a 5-2 diet. In fact, they're all with a 5-2 diet or alternate day fasting. And those show that people can, and so basically those trials are 12 months long. They have like a six-month weight loss period, and then that's followed by a six-month weight maintenance period where they do some kind of like modified version of the diet. So mm -hmm. with 5-2, sometimes instead of having the two fast days per week, in order to maintain weight, they'll just go down to like one fast day per week. Uh, and then same with alternate day fasting. They like either increase the calories on the fast day or like, you know, lower the amount of days that you're actually doing the fasting to maintain the weight loss. Um, people have to keep on following something though. I always try to point that out. You can't just because you lost all the weight, you know, and I know you know this as dietitians, you can't just like go back to the way you're eating before because then you'll just gain back all the weight. So you do have to do some kind of modified version. And yeah, those, those like six month weight loss or weight maintenance periods do show that, um, people can, um, maintain the weight the weight loss. All right. So Krista, when we're looking, a lot of the research, you know, has these shorter time periods, maybe eight weeks, 12 weeks, 16 weeks, for example. And then it kind of seems like it's more of a, a weight maintenance period after that, as you just spoke to. But during that initial period, when they are following a fasting protocol, what kind of weight loss or, or what's the magnitude of weight loss that, that you have seen in your research? Um, so yeah, it's for time restricted eating, it's like anywhere from like five to 15 pounds ish, I'd say in three months. Mm -hmm. And then with alternate day fasting, it's probably between like 10, like on average, 10 to 20 pounds. But then of course we always have like outliers, like people that lose like 60 pounds or so. So some people like really, I don't know, they must be adding in extra fast days or something, but so, there's always one or two people that lose like... Yeah, their BMI goes from like a 35 to like a 26 or something. It's incredible. Um, now, I'm going to bring up a, a study that you're probably very familiar. I know you've been interviewed about this before. It's the um, randomized control trial that was published in JAMA by Dr. Lowell and his colleagues that got a lot of media attention. Um, essentially, they did not observe a significant amount of weight loss in the participants, um, but 65% of the weight loss was attributed to uh, lean from lean mass, which is not something we would want to see. Um, I know you have some thoughts on this. I've heard you answer this question before, but I'm just really curious, um, and I want our listeners to hear your perspective on this. Oh, yeah, sure. No problem. Yeah, I do. I get that question a lot for sure. Yeah, I'm sure. Um, <laughs> so I actually, I remember when that study was just about to come out, I got, um, I've been luckily to be, I've been lucky to be interviewed by the New York Times like a couple times about intermittent fasting. So they like immediately called me when this thing was about to come out and they were like, Krista, do you know anything about like, you know, an eight hour diet over three months versus a control group. And I'm like, yeah, we literally ran that study like three years ago and like nobody wanted <laughs> to publish it because no one cared that much about time restricted eating. Like, 
you know, like six or seven years ago. So um, the first thing I want to say is that that study um, hasn't been reproduced by any other study in the field. Every other study in the field is showing that after, I believe that was a three-month study, an eight-hour window versus uh, what they called a control group, but they actually made people eat three meals a day, which people don't do. So they, I think it was run by people that were more animal scientists, honestly. Um, so it didn't, a lot of it didn't really make sense in terms of like clinical trial design. Um, but yeah, their control group ate three meals a day. Um, I can't remember. I don't think they were fed or anything, but basically both groups lost, I think like one or two kilograms. I think it turned out to be like 1% weight loss in both groups. And there was no statistical difference between the time-restricted eating group and the control group. Um, So one thing that people have to understand is that if you're only losing like one or two pounds, half of that being muscle mass, like there's a lot of error when you're using DEXA scans, which is what they used. And from my understanding, they didn't control for hydration status. And when you put people in these body composition scanners, you really have to make sure that um, you like controlled how much water they took in before that. Because if you don't, basically your muscle mass readings will be all over the place. So I think that's one of the issues that that happened. They didn't control for hydration status. So those, yeah, those muscle mass indicators weren't true. But at the same time, I don't know. I, I honestly, just because I haven't seen it repeated anywhere else, um, mm-hmm. I, I really don't know if I like have a lot of, well, I shouldn't say I had done a faith in the data. I'm sure the scientists, you know, did the best job they could, but I, it's just unfortunate that because it was published in JAMA, it got so much media attention. Um, but it hasn't seemed, I don't know, I guess you guys can tell me what you think, but people still seem really into the diets. Like it hasn't deterred anyone really from following them. I find they're still like really popular diets. And I'm hoping that when we publish this like 12 month study, which is for the eight hour diet, um, and we're also comparing it to daily calorie restriction and a control group. And I can tell you now we're almost done the study that, time-restricted eating is resulting in weight loss, and the amount of lean mass loss is no different from calorie restrictions. So it's, you know, it doesn't support at all what those people saw. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and, and that's, you know, that's part of why we asked you to come on this podcast. So to, you know, to be transparent, Kat and I do practice from a mostly non-diet approach. Um, so we're not encouraging our clients to follow diets for the most part, but We have to understand that, like you said, there's a lot of interest in intermittent fasting, diets in general, but especially intermittent fasting as of the past few years. So we are so excited to have you on here because we encourage all of our clients to really, you know, look at the research. And, you know, for most people, they're not going to read through research (laughs) articles, right? So for them to hear it from someone who studied it for so long is is really valuable because, again, there can be so many misconceptions, you know, when people are looking at the headlines that come out that a journalist is pulling from a research study. So it's really helpful to have you kind of explain your viewpoint of all of this. Oh, great. Yeah. And thanks for giving me the opportunity. I'm, yeah, I'm just so excited to publish our year long study. Hopefully it'll come out in the fall and then maybe people will forget about the low one. I don't know, but yeah, it's true. I get like so many questions about it. I'm like, okay. Um, and I, I'm happy to talk about it, but, um, cause that person's yeah, not an intermittent fasting researcher at all. Like the rest there's, if you look at that publication in JAMA, they're all the people in the field that actually research intermittent fasting wrote letters being like, this is not a good study. And then 
that's like outlined mm-hmm. in the journal. So, but unfortunately, the letters don't get a lot of media attention, even though they right. like clearly point out all the limitations of the study. But oh well. Of course. Sure. Yeah. But, you know, it, with uh, as, as Kelly just said, even though uh, various dietitians might have different philosophies in how to approach food and dieting and eating patterns and all that, it's important that we understand the research and uh, being able to interview somebody who researches this, it's like we're just getting the cream of the crop for what's actually going on and what you can say and cannot say, which is everyone's just sort of throwing out there their theories as to what this is good for, what is it not. And it's just, it can be very confusing for somebody who does not study nutrition, who has no context to the research world. So we are very thankful you're here. Oh, great. Thanks so much. I do, I'm not sure if I can mention this, you can cut this out if you want to, but I do have um, an Instagram um, account where I just give like, kind of like answers to frequently asked questions, like, can I drink alcohol with these diets? And like, how do I do these diets? What can I eat? So if anyone has um, just some general questions, I it's um, at Dr. Krista Verity. Um, so yeah, I, I try to have that just to help people out because it is, it's true. Like people can't, it's hard for you to read the research cause you need to be trained mm-hmm. to do that. And then a lot of people just yeah. don't even have access to it. Right. And the, it's expensive right. to buy, to buy those articles. Yeah, for sure. Speaking of media attention, this is a good transition to our next question. So Kat and I have, we actually prepared for an intermittent fasting episode, kind of solo, just us two. So we did a lot of research at that point um, before we had asked you to come on to join us. And there's certainly a lot of research in animal studies. And by comparison, you know, as with many topics in research, you know, you're, it's easier to study certain phenomenon in animals So in terms of intermittent fasting, there is less so, it seems, in human studies because everything is, you know, rapidly changing and people are studying more and more intermittent fasting in humans. But that being said, there can certainly be media articles, you know, news stories or things that are published online that are drawing conclusions from animal studies and kind of extrapolating those benefits to humans. So we were wondering if you could talk to us a little bit about how is how are animal studies not representative of, you know, what you can apply to humans? Oh, what a great question. Thanks so much for bringing this up. Yeah, reading the... Oh, that stuff really drives me crazy as well. Because like, <laughs> so the main the main reason that we just shouldn't be well, you know, we should be studying this in rodents and in certain animal models to look at like the mechanisms. Like, I think that makes sense. But in terms of um, actual clinical benefits for like weight loss and blood pressure or glycemic control, like we should not be looking at that data anymore. Just because like the the thing that the main driver of anything is adherence. And the animals are always, like, perfectly adherent, right? Because they have no choice. Like, they're, like, in the cages. They either get the food, they don't, they eat it. But humans, like, running clinical trials is really complicated because, like, a lot of the time people don't show up to their appointments or, you know, they all have lives. They One week it was, like, you know, the holidays or it was their birthday, so then they ate more and they couldn't stick to the diet. So it's very, very different. The, the things that we're seeing in humans... Um, does not is basically is not representative of what we're seeing in animals at all. So the animal da- data is not translating to humans. Like I was, there was this big review that came out two years ago in New England Journal of Medicine, and it was by really phenomenal researchers in the field, um, Dr. Mark Matson and Rafael De Cabo, and they're they both work at the NIH, and they're like they're very they're great scientists, but they're animal researchers, and all of it 
was based in animals. So I'd be giving these talks um, at conferences and people would be like, that's not true. You know, the New England Journal of Medicine says it does work for whatever, reducing inflammation. And I'm like, no, that's like, look at it. That's like in yeast and worms and in rodent models. (laughs) If you look at the human data, we literally see no changes in inflammation. And there's just, Mm -hmm. you know, like I think intermittent fasting I think it works. I think it's great, but I don't think it's magical or anything. I think it just helps people eat less. And because they're eating less, they're going to lose weight. And when someone loses weight, you get these metabolic benefits, like lowering blood pressure and all that stuff. But, um, yeah, there's just so much of the stuff on the internet about intermittent fasting is just taking from some random, random, like animal studies. So it is frustrating. Um, but yeah, I'll, I'll stop there. (laughs) Um, but you just answered the next question, which is really bad. <laughs> it's just that you get all these headlines on inflammation biomarkers, you know, the cell regeneration and all this like very, it seems, um, inflammatory uh, kind of response to a diet that is still fairly new. And I mean, you're in the thick of it. You're studying right right now, doing better, maybe longer studies or whatever. Um, yet people have already jumped the gun to say a bunch of things. So um, you attribute the success of this diet essentially to just the reduction of calories, Yes. Yeah. And, and so do all the other like human scientists in this field. So it's not, um, but it's true. The animal scientists are still like, oh, it's the ketones or it's the metabolic switch. And I'm like, your ketone levels do not go up that much within a 16 hour fast. Sure. They start going up after eight hours, but you don't go in, most people don't go into like full blown ketosis for like two or three days. So it honestly just doesn't mm-hmm. make any sense. Like that stuff right. more applies to like the long-term fasting when people are doing like days of water fasting or something. But, um, it's, uh, it's interesting too, because like when I started studying this, like back in 2005, like nobody cared about intermittent fasting. Nobody knew what it was. And I was like, I saw all these benefits starting to happen in humans and people just love that they like, like with alternate day fasting, they loved that they got a day off every other day from dieting where every other day they could just do what they wanted. So I was like, oh, meal timing is like the way to go, you know, opposed to like being obsessed with like carb counting and whatever. But now that intermittent fasting is popular, like I actually hate it because it's like everyone just says anything. Like people will like openly argue with me. (laughs) And I'm like, no, I'm literally like we've run thousands of people. Like I've seen the data. Like I I feel like I'm like one of the main people that I can like actually speak about it. I've seen all the raw data. And um, but people, you know, everyone's their own like expert, I guess, when it comes to food and dieting. Yes, yeah. we do battle with that. We <laughs> everyone do. eats, we do. right? So everyone has an opinion. Um, next question, Krista. We were wondering if you have seen any, maybe in your own research or research that you have read, if you've seen any studies that have included assessment on nutritional deficiencies, like by looking at blood work of uh, participants. Uh, So yeah, like to my knowledge, no one's looked at blood work. Um, Most of that's been assessed just through like food records and looking at if people are like eating enough of whatever the vitamin and mineral is. But yeah, that's a really important area I think that needs to be studied, Um, particularly for people that are doing intermittent fasting for longer periods of time, just because, you know, some people might not or might be eating like considerably less, like 30 or 40% less food. And then that's when you can run into issues with like micronutrient deficiencies for sure. Sure. Yeah, that's a question we 
um, we've had, and it, it'll be exciting to know long-term if that's the case or not. Um, and as we've mentioned throughout this podcast, there's a lot of things being said about intermittent fasting, some very unfounded, um, some not so much, some, some are, are pretty accurate. But in combing and preparation for this episode and this interview, um, we found some people talking about the dangers of intermittent fasting. And I don't know if you've heard of this, but for women's progesterone levels or cortisol or thyroid hormone levels, have you heard any of this stuff um, anywhere? Do you have any sort of input on that? Um, oh, it's it's so interesting. We're literally just about to submit a review article looking at reproductive hormones in men and women during intermittent fasting. Um, and I can tell you, it basically nothing changes. Um, the only thing that does change is this androgen called um, DHEA. We also studied this um, in some of our studies. Um, and I have to say, I'm not like an expert in this area. My, this is more my postdoc, um, Sofia Simfuegos. I don't know if you know her from, from UIC, but, um, she, she's been looking at this and in general, no, there is no effects, like no negative effects on reproductive hormones with intermittent fasting. That study that kind of spurred all that also unfortunately came from animals. So they did this study. (laughs) I know that just to go back to what we were just talking about. Um, So there was this study done, um, when was it? It was probably about 10 years ago or so. And they did it in very, very young mice. So mice that were, uh, or sorry, rats. And they were equivalent to like, um, like a nine year old female human. Like that would be about the approximate age. And they made these mice do pretty intense alternate day fasting where they did complete water fasting every other day in these um, rodents. And then they found that it had negative effects on like puberty and that type of thing. But then, you know, of course, like we would never have a nine-year-old child, female or male, like undergo any of these things because of course it would affect growth and puberty. So all of the problems and all of the issues come from that one study. Um, And it's still really heavily um, referenced in um, like maybe if, I'm not sure exactly which website you found that from, but it's pretty much, I guarantee you, like that study will come up. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Interesting. Is it it fair to say though, since most of the research has been, short-term protocols, you know, a few weeks to a few months. Is it fair to say that maybe we just don't have the data to make a statement about, you know, the potential dangers of intermittent fasting on these hormone levels, specifically in women? Or do you feel like what's out there currently supports the fact that it, it is safe, like there are no known effects on that? Uh, yeah, that's a really good point. Like since that they are, you know, we're looking at like three to four month data or up to 12 month data, we don't know for sure. But in general, intermittent fasting is not honestly that different from calorie restriction. Both of them result in roughly like a 500 calorie deficit every other day. And calorie restriction has been shown to not, you know, produce any negative effects in reproductive hormones either. So I can't imagine it happening happening with intermittent fasting, like these protocols. Mm-hmm. Um, I think like long-term water fasting may have some type of negative effect, but in general, intermittent fasting helps people lose weight, which actually helps them improve their hormone levels. Um, there are some studies in um, one initial study in women with PCOS, and it actually shows that it helps um, improve clinical features mm-hmm. of PCOS, and it helps kind of lower testosterone levels and that type of thing. So I think from the literature, if anything, we're showing that intermittent fasting could actually help improve reproductive hormone levels, or it has like no effect. Yeah, interesting. 
Yeah. Okay. I'm glad we, we talked about that. Um, I'm going to move us. We have two more questions, kind of similar area that Kat and I wanted to get your take on. So as I mentioned before, Kat and I are operating more from a non-diet perspective, but we understand that our listeners, you know, may be experimenting with diets. So we want to get your take on all of this. Um, question for you, if someone is looking to simply be healthier, to cultivate healthier habits, do you think that intermittent fasting, intermittent fasting is a good choice for them or is intermittent fasting mainly targeted for weight loss? Um, yes. Yeah, so we, we've definitely, we've run studies in people that are normal weight just to see if they can follow the diets and if it benefits them. And we have noticed um, some kind of like smaller improvements Definitely, you know, a little bit of weight loss, but, you know, that group doesn't have to lose weight. But then we saw um, along with that some like minor reductions in like blood pressure and triglyceride levels and LDL cholesterol. So I think... I think in general, intermittent fasting, like I'm normal weight and I, um, I practice the, the 16, eight diet where the main thing I do is I just try to, well, I don't start eating till like about 10 or 11 o'clock. And then right after dinner, I will, I'll stop eating. And I think it's just good to give your body a break from a constant influx of nutrients. Cause we're noticing, um, when you do that, your body has like a chance to kind of like turn inward on itself and like look at itself and kind of clean itself up basically. So it's that whole concept of a autophagy, which, um, is still only seen in, you know, it's shown in animals just cause we can't measure it yet in humans. Um, so we don't know the degree of it that's happening, but you know, I'm sure it is happening to some extent. So I think, yeah, intermittent fasting just gives your body a break from like always eating. And then that way, you know, you don't have as many like high circulating levels of glucose all the time. And then also like your insulin levels can go down. So that type of thing where, yeah, it's just, I think it's, it's healthy definitely to stop eating for certain periods of the day. Okay, thank you. That's that's helpful to know your perspective. Um, the last one is is kind of related. So, you know, obviously you've been studying intermittent fasting for a very long time. You know, upwards of, of fifteen years, and we're wondering what are your thoughts on the the non diet approach or the intuitive eating approach? If you're you know familiar with those and kind of what your take is coming from a background of, you know, extensively researching a, a diet, intermittent fasting. I, I have to admit, I haven't like looked in, is there a lot of research about intuitive eating now, or is it still so new that it hasn't really been tested? Yeah, there is some research. I think, you know, what, 10 years ago or 15 years ago, there was like none, but there is some now for, and I think it's, it's, um, a lot is sort of from the perspective of eating disorders or people who have binging disorders, things like that. Oh, and it, so it shows that it works. It helps people with weight management. Generally, it helps people kind of get um, off of this like yo-yo dieting of dieting, very restrictive eating um, and losing weight and then getting off of that. And sort of because we're overly restricting, then we are binging and overly eating. And so really just sort of this complete cycle of weight loss and weight gain, weight loss and weight gain. And the weight gain, usually it's significantly or higher than the weight that they started. So it helps people sort of get off of that wheel. Okay. Yeah. I, I have seen the kind of like yo-yo dieting studies. Um, I, you know, I think people just need to do what works for them long-term, honestly, like whatever that is. Like some, I get tons of emails like weekly from people saying that they've been 
following intermittent fasting for 15 years and it helped them lose like 60 pounds and reverse their type 2 diabetes. So for certain people, I think it does work, but there's not like one, you know, the whole thing, it's like there's not one thing that like fits everyone. So, you know, if intuitive eating, if that works for people, I think that's wonderful. I just, yeah, I haven't, I don't know much about it because I haven't like looked into the literature. Um, but, but yeah, whatever, as long as people can stick to it, that's the most important thing. Cause the second that they go off the diet, as you were just saying, they'll just gain back all the weight. That's a great take home message. Um, yes. and I, I think, you know, really resonates with, with Kat and I, as we've been practicing as dietitians that, you know, everyone is different and different ways of living and different ways of eating resonate with different people, right? So at the end of the day, if you find something that works for you and you feel great, you know, your energy levels are great, your lab work looks really good. You know, if you're happy from all of those perspectives, then, you know, that's the right choice for you. And, in the journey of finding that, it's important to really seek like legit information, not just, you know, shit that you find on the internet. So exactly. that is why nice. we, yeah, we invited you on here since you are very established in the literature for intermittent fasting. And we greatly appreciate your, your perspective today and you joining us. Thank you so much. Yeah. Thanks for having me. I had a great time. Yeah, Thank you. Well,